This audio is brought to you by muslimcentral.com. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad Rasulillah Alhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Brothers and sisters in Islam, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Well now we reach the biography of a third giant from among the many giants, uh, but especially among the four imams. Today we begin the seerah, the biography of the great imam, Al-Shafi'i. His real name is Muhammad, or his full name, may I say, is Muhammad ibn Idris Al-Shafi'i. He was born in 150 Hijri, in the Hijri date, 150, so 150 years approximately or more after the Prophet Sallallahu Hijra. And he died in 204 Hijri, so he lived about 54 years of age. Now I'm not sure last week if I said that Imam Ahmad lived that long, but to correct, to correct it in case, it was this Imam, Imam Shafi, who lived the shortest years among all the four Imams, 54 years of age. Uh, Imam Abu Hanif was about 70, Imam Malik lived the longest, about 90, 86 to 90, around there, and Imam Ahmad about 70 years of age. And you'll see why Imam Shafi'i, obviously the A'mar biyadillah, the life and death is in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But for every death there is a reason and a cause. And you'll see the cause of Imam Shafi'i's death later on inshaAllah. He was born in the same year in which Imam Abu Hanifa died in. So he did not meet Imam Abu Hanifa. But he did meet every other Imam almost that we hear about, including some of the teachers of Imam Abu Hanifa. Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq, which is a very familiar name. We're going to mention something about him today because it is a name of controversy, but he was one of his teachers as well. Along with the teachers of Imam Malik. However, his main teacher was Imam Malik himself. He was born in Gaza, which is current day also Gaza in Palestine. And he was known as Al-Imam Al-Makki, the Imam of Mecca, because his mother took him from Gaza when he was a child to Mecca. And basically he spent most of his youth, his childhood in Mecca. And he traveled a lot, a little bit different to the other Imams. He traveled extensively. And he finally died in Egypt. And so you will find that a lot of people today know him as Al-Imam al-Masri, the Imam, the Egyptian Imam, even though he only spent the last five years of his life in Egypt. So some call him Imam al-Makki, but generally they say Imam al-Masri, the Egyptian Imam. But these are just names and titles. If there was any title that I would give to Imam al-Shafi'i, it would be my choice of the encyclopedist. 
encyclopedist. In the encyclopedia, you'll find information about almost anything and explains almost everything and anything. Medicine, maths, astronomy, uh, religion, culture, any, everything. Imam Shafi'i was something like, he was an encyclopedist. And his knowledge, different to the other Imams, was almost in every area and every subject that you can know about. And you're going to know later on, inshallah, that not only was he in fiqh and uh, Arabic and linguistics, I'm going to talk about that, inshallah, but also in medicine. He was almost a full medical doctor. He only had to pursue it a little bit more. But he was very well learned in the area of medicine. Renowned for that. He was raised in Mecca as a child till the age of 13 years old approximately. Last week I already spoke about this 13 year old boy. You remember. Last week I introduced Imam Shafi talking about this 13 year old boy whose mother sent him from Mecca to learn under Imam Malik. Today we'll just briefly go through it when I get to it inshallah so that we can move on with the story as if you live in his time. His ancestral background, it's very important for us to know. And just to recap, Imam Abu Hanifa, he was from Kufa, in Iraq, born there, and died in Kufa. And I said that the title I gave him was The Loving and Intellectually Sharp. And I gave Imam Malik, the man of aura. You look at him, you have to respect him. And Imam Shafi'i, the encyclopedist. Imam al-Shafi'i was what we say he was a Hashimi. And a Hashimi means that he was from the bloodline of the Prophet Muhammad And he was a Hashimi in a very rare circumstance from both his parents, mother and father, from the bloodline of the Prophet So he shares the same tree, family tree as the Prophet And that's very rare. That only existed in two other people which I know of. Khalifa al-Amin. Khalifa al-Amin and Ali radiallahu anhu. The Prophet's cousin Ali radiallahu anhu. These are the only two that I know of in history and plus Imam Shafi'i who come from the Hashimi bloodline from both parents, mother and father. He's had his fourth grandfather and his third grandfather were both companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. As for his fourth grandfather, his name was As-Sa'ib ibn Ubayd. Just a little bit brief about him. He was a captive in the Battle of Badr. He was among the idolaters who fought against the Muslims in the Battle of Badr. And he was a captive. And uh, after that, he became one of the slaves. You know, in those days, this was universal. Slavery, not like today. And he became the slave of one of the poor families among the Muslims. Happened to be among them. He grew up to love them, actually. He didn't grow up, but I mean, he spent a few months with them and he loved them. Because the way Muslims treated slaves in those days was very different to everyone else in the world. They treated him well, they looked after him, and he actually felt sorry for him. His great-grandfather, his fourth grandfather came from a noble and rich family. Islam entered his heart, but he didn't pronounce Islam, his fourth grandfather, until a ransom was paid to, the, to his masters. There was a ransom asked when he paid to, for his release. And when he was asked, why didn't you become a Muslim before the ransom was paid? He truly and honestly said, the Muslim family I was with, I loved them a lot and they treated me well. And they were a poor family. And I didn't want to announce my Islam until they received their ransom in case I, I fear that they may not receive it because they needed it. So then he became a Muslim. 
And the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam loved him a lot, and he called him a special name. He called him my brother, Akhi. So he called the Sa'd, the fourth grandfather, as his brother. His third grandfather, Imam al-Shafi'i's third grandfather, his name was al-Shafi'i. That's what he's known as, al-Shafi'i, and hence the name al-Shafi'i. Shafi'i named after his third grandfather, Shafi'i. Shafi'i. That's how you you say it in, in Arabic. You add a ya to the end to say that he belonged to that. And his third grandfather accepted Islam as a boy in front of the Prophet ﷺ himself. And he was a Qurayshi, Hashimi, as I said, from Quraysh, in the same tree as the Prophet ﷺ. Imam al-Shafi'i's father was a merchant, a trader, who traded in goods, and he died in Gaza. And then his father... He died in Gaza, but first his mother took him to Mecca, where he became learned, and he went back to Gaza and died there. The reason I'm mentioning it, you're going to know soon why I'm saying these details. As for Shafi'a, his mother, she was bint Abdullah ibn al-Hasan al-Muthanna ibn al-Hasan ibn Ali radiyallahu anhum ajma'in. She was the daughter of Abdullah, the daughter of al-Hasan al-Muthanna, who was the son of the son of al-Hasan al-Musanna, Muthanna, who was the son of al-Hasan, radiyallahu anhu, the son of Ali, radiyallahu anhu. So uh, his mother, you can say, is the great-great-great-great-granddaughter of the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa that's, that's how close in lineage Imam al-Shafi'i was. And she was the descendant of Ali, radiyallahu anhu. She was also faqiha a scholar of jurisprudence. So she was a alim, a scholar. So was his father, but his mother, his mother even more. Similar to Imam Malik, his mother was the inspiration as well for Imam al-Shafi'i. And why am I explaining this background? Because later on it will give you a little understanding of Imam al-Shafi'i's political view coming from the lineage of the Prophet ﷺ and the problems around him and what people said about him, accused him of. Because he belonged to his family. You know this idea when someone belongs to the family of the Prophet ﷺ, somehow we automatically turn them into some superior beings. Yes, being from the family of the Prophet ﷺ is something very noble and very honorable. But there were many who were from the family of the Prophet ﷺ in his time who were disbelievers and they fought the Prophet ﷺ himself like his uncle Abu Lahab. It doesn't mean that just because you're from his bloodline it means that now we have to overpraise you. It means that you cannot accept charity from people. So that's one thing. But as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَا تَزِرُوا أُخْرَى No soul holds the burden of another soul. So whether you're from the bloodline of the Prophet or not, does not mean now that automatically you deserve Jannah more than other people. But yes, if you're from his bloodline, you do carry something quite noble and honorable. But what matters in Islam is not the blood, but rather the taqwa, the piety. But we do respect Ahlul Bayt, the family of the Prophet ﷺ, the immediate family of the Prophet ﷺ. We're going to get back to that in a minute, inshallah. The believers among them. So Imam al-Shafi'i being from the family, and also a man of taqwa and knowledge, requires all this coupled together, requires enormous respect and honor for this man, Imam al-Shafi'i. His birth story, as we said last week, I want to add something to it. His birth story was similar to the birth story of Abdul Muttalib. Who's Abdul Muttalib? 
the grandfather of the Prophet And Abdul Muttalib's father, Hashim, he was a merchant, and he died in Gaza as well. Uh, sorry, the son of Abdul Muttalib, Hashim, he was a merchant as well, and he died in Gaza, like the grandfather of, like the father of Imam Shafi'i. And his mother took him to Medina. And from Medina, his uncle, Al-Muttalib, took him, took Hashim to Mecca. I don't know how much you know about this story by the Prophet ﷺ. And the people thought that Hashim was the son, was the servant, uh, I'm sorry, Hashim's mother took him to Medina. And Hashim had a son named Shaiba, Shaiba, whose mother took him by his uncle to Mecca. And his uncle's name was Al-Muttalib. People thought he was his slave, so then they called Shayba Abdul Muttalib. That's the grandfather of the Prophet. That's how we got his name, Abdul Muttalib. And so this is similar to a Shafi'i. Took him from Gaza, and his grandfather died in Gaza, his father died in Gaza, and then Imam Shafi'i went to Mecca. Mum took him there, similar to that. As for his kid life, his teenager life, Imam Shafi'i loved sports. Sports, any sports fanatics here? Imam Shafi'i was a sports person. He had a beautiful voice in the Quran, just like Imam Malik and Imam Abu Hanifa. They all had beautiful voices. Imam Shafi'i is such a beautiful voice in the Quran. The people of Mecca, when they used to hear him recite, everybody would stop what they're doing, go and listen, or they'd listen to his voice from a distance because his voice was beautiful in the Quran. We're going to come to that in a minute, inshallah. Uh, he loved archery. That's a favorite sport. He was 10 out of 10 in archery. Excellent horse rider. And he would jump on his horse without needing to touch anything, maybe just the ears or the, the head. So it was a very, he was also healthy. And he lived in the desert, it's very important, for 17 years of his life. He spent about five years as a child. His mother, when he was a child, his mother sent him to the desert for five years of his childhood, until he was 13 or 12. The desert, and then he spent another 12 years in the desert later on. Why? There was a, a, a tribe in the desert by the name of Banu Huzayl. When you hear this name Banu Huzayl, all the Arab world, especially in those times, knew that Banu Huzayl was where the original Arabic, the, the, the Arabic is to be taken from there. They were the spring, the fountain of all the Arabic of the world, Banu Huzayl. They were the linguists of Arabic. Which gives you an idea that Imam Malik was an exceptional, extraordinary, extraordinary linguist in Arabic, linguistics. He knew the origins of the words and he was in itself a reference. Do you know what that means, a reference in Arabic? It means, I'll just explain for those who don't, it means that if someone said an Arabic word and everybody in the city disagreed on this, is this an Arabic word or is it not? They look up the books, right? And they're still in controversy. Then finally they would say, hey, listen, let's sort it out and cut our, our arguments by checking with Imam al-Shafi. If he says it's an Arabic word, then that's it. He was the reference. End of story. Nobody argued in the whole of the world, the whole of the world, about Imam al-Shafi being the reference of Arabic. And I'm going to explain that further, inshallah, in a little while. The turning point, just like I explained, that every Imam had a turning point where they went from one thing to another. 
Imam, Imam Abu Shafi'i also was not you know, raised straight away into, as a alim from a childhood. Yes, his mother, she helped him to memorize the Qur'an and he memorized it by the age of seven, the whole Qur'an. It is also said that he memorized Al-Muwatta, we mentioned it last week, the book of Hadith of Imam Malik, by the age of 10 or 13 years of age. Like Abu Hanifa, he was inspired by another scholar. So there were two inspirations. We said his mother, but first, he had an uncle who was a scholar. And in those days, they all learned this thing called Farasa, Alm al-Farasa. It's a science of looking at a person, and from their features, you are able to see signs of particular qualities in the person. It wasn't stereotyping. It was basically, it's a science. I don't know if you watched, uh, there's this uh, film they put on from America, uh, Don't Lie to Me. Ever heard of that episode, Don't Lie to Me? It talks about, uh, it shows a man, is a detective, and he can look at you and tell if you're lying or telling the truth or what kind of background you have. It's actually a science that you learn about people. And they took this from the Arabs. And they had this Alm al-Farasa. So his uncle looked at it, his nephew, and at the age of about 10 or 11, he says to him, Son, I see brilliance and intelligence in you. Imam al-Shafi was an orphan at that time. His father died in Gaza, as we said. So his uncle said to him, I see brilliance and intelligence in you. Again, I mentioned this again. When you look at a child, your children or another child, it's very important what you say to them about their qualities. If you say to him, for example, I can see that you're going to memorize the Qur'an one day. The child puts it in their head. And as I said, I had a colleague of mine. I asked him, how did you become, why did you go into the field of becoming an imam, a shaykh? And he said, when I was a child, they always called me shaykh, shaykh. It has an effect, psychological effect on children. We don't all have to become shaykhs. In the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that there are knowledge of different types of people. If Allah wanted, He can make you all ulama. But we need in all areas, insha'Allah. Just monitor your children, see what interest they have, so long as it's halal, be comfortable and help them in that area, insha'Allah. His second inspiration was his mother was his mother. She sent him, as I said, to the deserts for five years, like the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. His mother Amina also sent him to the deserts for five for, for for about five years or so, and he spent his childhood there, more than that, to learn how to talk and communicate. Brothers and sisters, it is very important for a Muslim to learn how to communicate. Communication is an art and a skill that if you haven't done some form of communication, go and even study it if you can. Even me, I'd say just to make you feel better, I need a lot in the area of communication. It's a whole science and art. It's not just a matter of how to talk, but also to communicate effectively. And the Musa alayhi salam, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told him to go to Fir'aun, tyrant leader. What did Musa salam say? He said, Please send with me Harun. He has better eloquence in his tongue. He's able to communicate better than I can. It is said that Musa salam had a lisp and he wasn't confident. So Allah sent his brother Harun, made him a prophet because he was a better communicator, speaker. As the poet says, لِسَانُ الْفَتَى نِصْفٌ وَنِصْفٌ فُؤَادُهُ فَلَمْ تَبْقَى إِلَّا صُورَةُ اللَّحْمِ وَالدَّمِ A young man, what is he other than a tongue which makes half of him and his heart makes the other half. Everything else is nothing but the form or the features of 
meat and blood. You're nothing but meat and blood. What makes you is what comes out of your mouth and what's in your heart. Isn't that right? doesn't matter about your features, what you look like. What comes out of your mouth and what is in your heart, this is what really matters. The heart and the tongue make everything about you. And that's why you find ulama who weren't, didn't have you know, attractive features at all. But what take, came out of their tongue and from their heart, if you were to turn it into a feature, it will shine beyond the sun, beyond the horizon, in beauty. As for Imam Shafi's gift, he had a gift of memory. Now all the ulama had this gift, but Imam Shafi, he was the pinnacle of this. He stood out in memory. As I said, he memorized the Qur'an at 7. He was a poet at 10, a reference poet at 10. It's not easy to become an Arabic poet. Forget about Shakespeare and the likes. When you learn Arabic poetry, oof, it really goes deep. And as I said, he memorized the Muwatta at 10 or 13 years of age with all the chain of narrators and the sayings of the companions and so on and so forth, word by word, letter by letter. He read the Qur'an every single day of his life. It is said that he, mem- he read the whole Qur'an every day. And it's not an exaggeration. Allahu A'lam, maybe the time in those days, in that first 300 years after the Prophet ﷺ, there was barakah in the time, some scholars say. And there is a little story about, to show you how much he memorized, mashallah, a photographic memory beyond imagination. So much so, he is, one of his teachers was named Waqiyah. And there's this uh, nice story about him. As Imam al-Shafi'i, when he was with his teacher, Waqiyah, teaching him, he used to go and write, and I'll explain how he wrote. He'd look at a page where he has written on, and he'd need to cover the other pages. And when I say pages, I don't mean paper. He never wrote on paper. I'll explain to you in a minute what they did write on. So if he had a piece of bark, and another piece of bark, he'd have to cover the other piece of bark as he's reading because all he needed to do was read a whole page once and he memorized every word. If he read a line from one page and a line from the other, then his memory was so good that he would mix the two lines. So he had to read page by page. If he read two lines from different pages, he'd mix them in his memory. And one time he says, as I said, he was a great poet, one time he's reading from one page and then suddenly... He looked up and his eyesight double caught a little bit of the lower leg of a woman walking by. It was revealed as she was walking, he saw the lower part of her shins. His eyes stood there for a few seconds, then he looked away. Obviously a human being, he said, Astaghfirullah, a mu'min doesn't get affected by it. But he looked back at the page and his memory ability decreased immediately. When I say decreased, I don't mean like us, I couldn't memorize any word, but instead of reading it once, he had to read twice or three times. He says, I was stunned. It's the first time this has happened to me. So he wrote a poem. It says, There are two different versions of this poem. He says, I complain to my teacher, Waqiyah, my lack of memorization. And my teacher guided me to abstain from sins. And he said to me, knowledge of deen is from Allah. It is, knowledge is nur, it's light from Allah. And the light of Allah can never be gifted 
to those who are consistent sinners. So if you find yourself lacking in memory, one of the reasons could be medical, or a lot of stress, or worries, and the other reason could be lots of sins. This is one little interesting story. As for his writing material, when we talk about these scholars' writing, you don't, don't think about pages of paper like this. It's very rare, and it's very, it was very expensive in those days. So what did they write on? Imam Shafi finds struggled in writing on his material. He'd have things like palm tree leaves, animal skin, camel bones, rocks, anything they could get their hands on, piece of material, anything they could get their hands on, and ink and feather. This is how they wrote. Sometimes he would carve things just to remember them. Not like us today, and subhanAllah how much useless information we write on this, not the Qur'an, paper, on the internet, Weeze up all the trees. So he struggled in that writing. As for his features, Imam al-Shafi'i was Arab looking. Very healthy. Had a strong build. Tall. Muscular. Or masculine. He had a strong presence. When he walked in, everybody stopped and listened and looked at him. He faced many trials in his life especially with the government. He had an amazing character indeed. And some, uh, there is a, a scholars, historical scholars say that he is the ninth greatest imam of all time after the Prophet ﷺ, after the companions. And he was, as I said, from among the three best generations after the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ said, Khairul Quruni Qarni. The best of all generations are my generation. Then the ones who follow them after that. Then the third best generation are the ones who follow them after that. All of the four Imams, except for Imam Abu Hanifa was of the second generation, was a Tabi'i. And the other three Imams, Malik, Imam Malik, Ibn Anas, Imam Shafi'i, Muhammad ibn Idris, Shafi'i, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, they were of the third generation. So they were among the ones whom the Prophet ﷺ praised and said they are the best of three generations ever, till the end of time. His education and morals and etiquettes and character was exemplary. He was the example of all of that. And as we said, brothers and sisters, before, as Imam Malik's mother said to him, learn off your teacher, the adab, the character, before you learn the knowledge, similarly the mother of a Shafi'i said to him, when you go to Imam Malik, learn from him his character before you learn his knowledge. And as a child, as a teenager, this is what he put into his head. So Imam Shafi'i was almost a copycat of the adab, of the respect and morals of Imam Malik. He only differed in one thing. Imam Malik was a little bit more rigid in his personality. Imam Shafi'i was a little bit more easygoing, just a tiny bit. So that's, that's basically what it was. Other than that, he took his character on very well. Imam al-Shafi'i also was very humble. He accepted any advice from anybody. As soon as you gave him advice, if it had evidence and dalil, he'd listen to you until you finished. There is a story about one of his students. And this is an example of why we should not be blind followers. Parrots. Ever heard of parrot students? We are not parrots. The only one we take from is the fountain of the Prophet Muhammad in the Qur'an. 
Our scholars explain it for us further, but they are not prophets where we blind follow them. They make errors. But, obviously, within our capacity, and there are other ulama who find errors in their work, and we can take from their knowledge, insha'Allah. There was a story about one time when he was in one of the lessons after he became a alim, and a person came up to him, one of his students, and asked, Ya Imam, in my wudu, should I clean between my toes? Is this part of wudu? He said, no, there is no need to do so. Just wash your feet. One of his students, and I forgot his name now, but maybe inshallah next week I can remember, look him up. He said, I waited until all the people left. And the students learned the adab, the character of their teacher first. This is the character of Imam Shafi himself. So one of his favorite students says, I waited until they left, and I came to my imam and said to him, narrated by so-and-so, well, from so-and-so, from so, he gave him a chain of narration, that he saw the Prophet ﷺ, the companion, saw the Prophet ﷺ wash between the toes in his wudu with his small finger, the pinky finger. Imam Shafi looked at it, and obviously he's a scholar of hadith. He says, هذا حديث حسن. This is a good hadith. Its chain of narration is good at that level. The student says, after that, whenever someone asked him about it, I heard Imam Shafi say to him, yes, clean between your teeth, between your toes. So you can see here that his student taught his teacher something which, yes, it's possible that the Imam doesn't know. But what's the point here? He gave him dalil that went to the Prophet ﷺ. He knew its grading and its level. And he took it. And this was the moral, the motto of all the Imams. From Imam Abu Hanifa to Imam Malik, to Imam Shafi to Ahmad Muhammad, Imam Al-Awza'i, Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq, Imam Al-Layth ibn Sa'ad, Imam, all these Imams that you hear of, they were all in the same way. They were all similar. They were all had this, this uh, similarity and they all respected each other. And they all accepted differences of opinions, but they rejected division. They all learned from each other. This is how they addressed each other, subhanAllah. The most important thing they all said is, إِذَا صَحَّ الْحَدِيثِ فَهُوَ مَذْهَبِي If the hadith is correct, and it goes against my view, then throw mine against the wall. It is my madhab. This is my school of thought. This is all we're trying to do here. This is our work. And we know the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, that if the alim makes a mistake, he gets one reward. But if he got the right opinion, then he gets double the reward. So it's still reward in both ways. So even if you follow the alim whom you trust, and you know is qualified, and other ulama have recommended him, then or her, then you can follow them, even if what you have is an error. But once it is clarified in some way or another, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides you to clarity, which in your mind and in your heart you know it's much more clear from other ulama, then you accept it, and you don't have to leave the other madhab. There's nothing wrong with following a school of thought. Someone asked me this last time. There's nothing wrong with following one. It's okay, inshallah, they're all great ulama. It's like taking alim today as your teacher and following him. It's okay. But blind following is the problem. This is what I said. This came from the Middle Ages where this blind following happened. And Imam Malik's madhab went to Spain and North Africa. And this happened as well, where his students of his students, they started to overpraise Imam Malik to the point where, wallahi, to the point where they said to them, Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa said, and then they would say, but Imam Malik said, wallahi, this, is, this was how it was. And Imam Malik is innocent from all of this. He went to the extremes, Imam Malik, when he knew about this, he knew about this was happening in his time. To the point where he was very careful 
that fasting the six of Shawwal, six days of Shawwal, he insisted on making it a few days after Ramadan, separating it. Not straight away, not the second day after Eid. He wanted to separate it a lot. This was his view. Why? He was fearing that people will make it, turn it into a bid'ah, into an innovation where Ramadan becomes 20, 36 days. So he was very careful of innovations. And Imam al-Shafi'i did something remarkable. He actually wrote a book pointing out the errors of his teacher, his master, Imam Malik, after his death. And Imam Malik, if he was alive and saw that book, he would praise it. Because if you say he wouldn't, then you're saying something bad about Imam Malik, that he only followed his own opinion. But out of ilm, and this is how he taught his students, Imam Malik and Imam Shafi'i was his favorite. You go back to last week's lecture and you will find the story, I'm not going to repeat it now, how his mother wrote a letter to the uh, prince of Mecca, who happened to be her cousin, to intercede with the prince of Medina for her son to go and learn of Imam Malik. And the story goes long if you want to go back to it. Imam Malik <coughs> took him and he looked at him and said, Fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and avoid sins. Something great is going to become out of you. And Imam Malik had Alm al-Farasa, as I said before, the science of knowing a person. Looked at him and says, you are a child of brilliance and intelligence. Something great is going to come out of you. And so he loved his teacher, Imam Malik, loved him, respected him the most. His favorite student, Imam Shafi's favorite student, on the other hand, was Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. And whenever Imam Shafi left from Mecca or Medina and went, he used to say, I have left behind me my most brilliant student, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, which we're going to talk about later on, inshallah. So let's go through his teachers. Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani says that Imam Shafi'i had 17 teachers in total in his life. They were like his real teachers. Others, they said, 26 teachers in his lifetime. However, his direct teachers, and I'll mention a few, Number one on the top was Imam Malik. He was his teacher until he died. Imam Malik died. So from the age of 13 years, Imam Malik was about 50, 50 something, uh, uh, 60 something years of age until Imam Malik died at the age of 86 or 90. His second teacher was Sufyan ibn Uyayna. Sufyan ibn Uyayna was from Kufa and he went to Mecca and he was a student and a contemporary scholar with Imam Abu Hanifa. And he was the second teacher of Imam Shafi'i, this direct student of Imam Abu Hanifa and his contemporary, his friend, who was almost at his caliber, teacher of Imam Shafi'i. His third teacher worth mentioning is Muhammad ibn al-Hassan, who was the direct student and the best student of Imam Abu Hanifa. And Muhammad ibn al-Hassan al-Shaybani, he, he became the chief judge in Iraq in Baghdad later on, at the time of Khalifa Harun al-Rashid. So you can see here a collaboration between these great imams from other imams. And what kills me is that today, this division when you find a person you say, and they say, they're the Hanafi people, they're the Shafi'is. This never existed at that time, say Hanafi, Shafi'is. It actually did not exist. And as I mentioned before, it came a time later on in the Middle Ages, where around the Kaaba there were four uh, imams with four jama'as of different madhabs. Actually, there were probably five. The Awza'i, I think it was Awza'i or another one. Ja'fari. Allahu alam. As for his indirect teachers, I'll mention just a couple. They were Imam al-Awza'i. Imam al-Awza'i 
had a madhab as well. However, his madhab didn't last long. It didn't last for about two years. And he had a problem with his students. His students were disobedient. They weren't very good students in Egypt. <laughs> Tells you a lot about the Egyptians, maybe. <laughs> no, no, I'm not stereotyping, brothers. Please don't make a revolution against me now. Egyptians. So these students happened to be one of those who were, uh, happened to be, subhanAllah, not very uh, polite students. And Imam Al-Layth had a hard time with them. However, what did last of the school of thought, the madhab of Imam I'm sorry, I, I, I mixed around. Not Imam Al-Awza'i, it's Imam Al-Layth. Imam Al-Layth. But also, it, I'll come back to you. But Imam Al-Awza'i, not that his students were not like that, it was Imam Al-Layth, I'd correct myself. But Imam Al-Awza'i's madhab did discontinue. What lasted from, till today, from his madhab, is the area about international law. In our sharia, we have of every area. And fiqh of international law, it's called as Guess who preserved this area of Al-Awza'i's madhab of international law? It was Imam al-Shafi'i in his book Al-Um, which we're going to come to it in a few seconds, inshallah, a few minutes. His fifth teacher, indirect, and when I say indirect, it means that he didn't actually sit directly in his circles, but he learned of his direct students, his best students who became ulama. His indirect uh, alim was also Imam al-Layth ibn Sa'ad. Imam al-Layth ibn Sa'ad was the best friend of Imam Malik, we mentioned it last week, and he lived in Egypt. It was him who I was meant to say that his students were, gave him a hard time. And Imam Layth had a bit of a madhab, was developing, but it didn't last. His favorite student went to Al-Yaman. Al-Yaman, and that's where Imam Shafi'i spent most of his time. He started his work in Al-Yaman and learned of this. When he learned of this student, Imam Shafi'i grew a great interest in, in Imam Layth ibn Sa'ad. He loved him a lot. And he was very interested and he was actually influenced by his way after Imam Malik. Imam Layth disagreed with Imam Malik a lot. Because Imam Malik, if you recall, he used to have this principle that I rule, one of his rulings was to rule by the people of Medina. Like how the Sahabas in Medina used to practice and act and he based his madhab on that. A, little, a great portion on that. Imam Layth used to say, nobody talking about, yeah, Imam Malik. Uh, yes, they were great Sahabas, but we can't take them 200 years down the track and say we got to practice according to their practices. It doesn't make sense. Time changes. And Imam Shafi was affected by that. He became a mufti, a grand a mufti. We said a mufti is someone who can directly de- de- derive rulings from the Quran and Sunnah straight away on issues that have never happened before at the age of 20 years approximately. One of his teachers qualified him to be a mufti at the age of 15 years. Imam Shafi'i was a genius, really. As I said, encyclopedist is the name. And he had this great adab character. And brothers and sisters, character cannot be learned from books. You can't bring a book and learn adab and character, unfortunately. Guess how you can learn character? Through training. You have to be trained. Just like swimming, just like martial arts, just like driving. Imagine, you get a book about how to drive. And that's it, you know how to drive. When we were children, I remember in grade 4 and 5, we used to puff our chest up in front of our mates and say, I can drive a truck. 
yeah, you just do this, and you read about it a little bit, and you just describe it, and suddenly you know how to drive a truck, or an aeroplane, or swimming. Imagine it, you read a book about swimming, and you jump into the pool. What's going to happen to you? Imagine that, your son reads all this stuff about swimming, and say, okay, now you push him into the pool, and let him drown. You're not going to be able to, you have to be trained. So adab and character is exactly like that. He was a school of his own in all areas. No student or imam commented a flaw about Imam Shafi'i's character and his way of thinking. Except for later on, they commented about his madhab. But Imam Malik, Imam Shafi'i was a great example of respect, character. And no one ever commented a flaw about that. Including Imam Malik, never commented. He had the utmost respect towards all of his teachers and people. He had an assertive nature. He pointed out errors in his teachers' opinions with respect and friendliness. And mostly in his teacher, Imam Malik. He really criticized a lot of their teachings and so he was on that, at, at that position. And that goes to show us, again, about the scholars and ulama. When they differ, they differ on branches of branches of the deen. It's not something huge, don't worry. Tiny, tiny things about... You know, uh, something like, when I put my hand, do I grasp onto it or is it better to use two fingers or three fingers to put it on top? And do I put it exactly on the chest or just below the chest? Okay, these are the types of, or just some views on how to look at things. Like Imam Malik said, I, I look at the people of Medina on new issues. Imam Shafi said, no, 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 you have to look at the context of time. These types of things, like when you're at court or lawyers, they all know the law, but when it comes to their opinions... They did give different verdicts on this person or that person or this situation. So yes, Islam is black and white, but how? It's black and white in principle, meaning you can use it very clearly to derive new rulings. Imam Shafi'i wrote a book, as I said, against some of the stuff of Imam Malik's views after his death, yet he still called him his master. So whenever he commented on an error, he would say, my master said this. However, I respectfully say this based on this dalil. Because this deen is not ours. These were not ulama of wealth and money. These were not ulama of fame and fortune or government scholars. All of them were inheritors of the Prophet ﷺ and all of them supported each other in this. As I said, Imam Malik would have been happy to see this because he hated bid'ah. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal was the student of Imam al-Shafi'i. Imam al-Shafi'i was the student of Imam Malik. And Imam Malik was the student of the great students and contemporary scholars of Imam Abu Hanifa. So was Imam al-Shafi'i. And so did Imam Ahmad as well reach some of them. Imam al-Shafi'i says... Everyone I debated with, I saw at one instance or another a sign of discomfort. Because MashaAllah, he was really good in his arguments. When I say argument, I'm not talking about the type of arguments we go through. You know, with desires and just, I want to be the best, I want to know the land. These arguments were, this is how they used to be. If I debated with someone, all these imams say, if I debated with someone, in my heart I'm wishing that the other person is correct and I am wrong. But they had a commitment to honesty as well. 
So I, I'm debating with you, but I'm wishing in my heart my brother would be correct. I don't want to embarrass him. But I also have a commitment to honesty. So we can't, you know, we have to bring a balance. And that's how it is. This day and age, we debate and argue with no commitment to honesty. Hide behind a username and just cut and paste anything without even understanding what you're putting. So he said, any person I debated, I saw one instance or another a sign of discomfort in them, except one man. I never saw it. He was Imam Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani, who I said before was one, the, the best student of Abu Hanifa. He was also a teacher of Imam al-Shafi'i. Brothers and sisters, there's something really interesting to know. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal considered Imam al-Shafi'i as what we call mujaddid. He said, Imam al-Shafi'i mujaddid al-mi'at al-thaniya. He is the reformer of the second 100 years. There's a hadith of the Prophet which is sahih. He said, every 100 years, every century, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings about someone to reform this din, to take the people back to the original teachings of the Prophet People go lost, Allah sends. So instead of sending a prophet, He sends a alim that brings these people back. And the scholars agree that the first one, the first mujaddid after the Prophet in the first century was none other than the Khalifa Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. Radiallahu anhu, say the fifth Khalifa. The second Mujaddid, in the view of many scholars, including Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, it was Imam al-Shafi'i. It was Mujaddid, the reformer. Imam al-Shafi'i, as I said, was a linguist in Arabic. He had tremendous abilities, as I said. Encyclopedia in Arabic language and grammar. A reference at 17, 17 years with Banu Huzayr. Never made a mistake in language, grammar, or in, even in poetry. And there are many testimonies by renowned poets. And interestingly enough, I don't know if you've heard of one of his famous students by the name of Al-Asma'i. Anyone heard of him? Imam Al-Asma'i, he was a scholar of fiqh, but also a very, an extraordinary poet. He was one of the, I think, 14 or 15 extraordinary, extraordinary historical poets. Have you heard of the poem, Sawtu Safir Al-Bulbuli? Sawtu Safir Al-Bulbuli. And it, he uses Arabic in there, words that you need uh, a dictionary for every single one of these words, every single one of these letters. And then he goes on and says, uh, uh, he says uh, things like, um, these are types of words he used in there. Uh, uh, so these are types of words he used to use that were even for the Arabs very very difficult unless you came from the deserts to understand every single word and some of them started to think are these even words of Arabic? they happen to be and every word had a different meaning this was the student of Imam al-Shafi'i who learned Arabic and poetry from Imam al-Shafi'i and he spent time with Imam al-Shafi'i and he read under him the most difficult poetry which is called and known as al-Shanfara al-Shanfara very difficult of among the greatest of poetry. And he studied this Ashamfara from Imam al-Shafi'i. So you can imagine how much in Arabic. What, what's the benefit of this? The Qur'an. In tafsir. So Imam al-Shafi'i was also a mufassir. In tafsir. Renowned in tafsir. To learn the Arabic language. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an, 
We have surely sent this Qur'an down in the Arabic language so that you may comprehend and understand. A famous alim uh, of Basra said, Al-Shafi'i's language is authentic and you can measure language to him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does mention some things about poetry, poets in the Qur'an. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَالشُعَرَاءُ يَتَّبِعُهُمُ الْغَاوُونَ أَلَمْ تَرَ أَنَّهُمْ فِي كُلِّ وَادٍ يَهِيمُونَ وَأَنَّهُمْ يَقُولُونَ مَا لَا يَفْعَلُونَ إِلَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ وَذَكَرُوا اللَّهَ كَثِيرًا إِلَى آخِرِ الْآيَةِ To the rest of the ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, As for the poets, the erring ones, follow them. See you not that they speak about every subject praising people right or wrong in their poetry, and that they say what they do not do. Now this is not nice for poets. But how come Imam Shafi was a poet? It doesn't matter. Allah says, إِلَّا الَّذِينَ Except for those who believe in the oneness of Allah and do righteous deeds and remember Allah much. They're okay to be poets because they say the best of poetry. And Rasul Sallallahu had a poet by the name of Safwan, uh, by the name of uh, Al Hassan ibn Thabit and the rest. So poetry is like the media in those days. Imam al Shafi'i was one of those. He has a poem about uh, friendship and money. He says, رَأَيْتُ النَّاسَ قَدْ مَالُوا إِلَى مَنْ عِنْدَهُ مَالُوا وَمَنْ لَيْسَ عِنْدَهُ مَالُوا عَنْهُ النَّاسُ قَدْ مَالُوا I saw that people leaned towards those who have money. And those who do not have money, from, away from him people have leaned. It makes more sense in Arabic, but he's saying that don't approach people. People, people love people who are wealthy and so on. Now, Imam al-Shafi'i was the first to document his own madhab with his own hand. The other imams, their students documented it. He was the first to document it personally. He summarized it in a book called Al-Umm. And it, the, the book Al-Umm contains opinions of Abu Hanifa's madhab and others. It contains ideas of Imam al-Awza'i, international law, and so on in Islam. But his greatest legacy was a smaller book by the name of Al-Risala. This is very renowned. The book Al-Risala simplified, has simplified principles which all the madhabs agree on. They are the principles of fiqh, which makes Imam al-Shafi'i the first one to introduce this new approach called the fiqh, the principles of fiqh, usul al-fiqh. Have you heard of that? Usul al-fiqh, the fundamentals of fiqh. It's a, very, it's a great science which they teach in universities now, sharia. Imam Abu Hanifa was renowned to be to... Uh, start the usul al-sharia and a different type of fundament, fun, uh, fundamental principles and Imam Malik was the first to begin the principles of hadith and Imam al-Shafi the principles of fiqh it tells you how to think about the Quran and hadith how to deduce rulings and laws it tells you how to go about all of that he also learned something called the science of ansab the science of Ansab is people's lineage and ancestry, trees and branches. You'd need a computer to calculate it all. And uh, this is something interesting for our sisters and also our men, our brothers. Uh, there was a man by the name of Abdul Malik ibn Hisham. He's very well known, this scholar. Very well known about lineages and where people came from. And you needed this to know the narrators of hadith, to know where they came from and their background and everything, to know whether the hadith is authentic or not. So this man, this great scholar Ibn Hisham, he came to Imam al-Shafi'i 
And he said to him one day, let's talk about Ar-Rijal, the men of Hadith and their lineages and their character. Imam al-Shafi'i looked at him and said, no, 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 no. That's something common. Everybody knows about men of Hadith. Let's sit down and talk about, instead of Ilm al-Rijal, let's talk about Ilm al-Nisa. Let's talk about the knowledge and lineage of the women of the narrators of Hadith. See, people, miss, they forget about that. That many of our hadiths came from narrators who were women, who were great scholars of our time. And Imam al-Shafi'i knew the lineage and character and background and names and everything about more than 1,000 women of narrators of hadith and scholars. Their lineage, their character, their biography, etc., etc. And Ibn Hisham was taken aback. He said, Ilm nisa the lineage and knowledge of the narrators of hadith among the women. He said, that's something I haven't really discussed with anyone yet. And so, it encouraged them to learn more about Ilm nisa There's a poem from Imam Shafi who says, Da'anka asbabu rijali wa khuth bina asbabu nisa'i. Let's not talk about uh, the ansab, the ansab rijal the lineage of men. Let's talk about the lineage of women, of narrators of hadith. And this is the beauty and the miracle that the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu left uh, for us that there are scholars among the men and the women. And I don't believe that there is a civilization or religion other than Islam that held this very to the detail about women who were scholars of Islam, narrators of hadith, to detail, like what Islam, history of Islam, held them to be and honored them and put them right up there. See, when we say Shaykh, we always say Shaykh, Imam, we think of men, but we forget to think of women. How much time do I have left? Is it? Can anyone tell me? Jalal? Just we'll see. We'll keep going just for a little bit. There's a, an area which I need a bit of time to go into, and it's about the trials and tribulations that Imam Shafi'i went through. I'll begin it, inshallah, and we'll see what we can get up to. Every Imam among the four Imams and others, as I said last week, had to face a clash with the government or a clash with the people. Because all of them were courageous. And as I said, they weren't government scholars. They weren't scholars of desire, scholars of wealth. They were scholars who knew that they were inheriting the legacy of the Prophet Muhammad with sincerity. There are many people of learned information. But not many who are real scholars or ulama. As Allah says, Verily the ones who really and truly fear Allah are the scholars. So the scholars without fear of Allah, without consciousness, without sincerity are not scholars at all. And as we said, there are people who are criminals and very knowledgeable in hacking and so on. They're knowledgeable, they're scholars in that area, but they are not ulama. And so on and so forth. In the time of Imam al-Shafi'i, something began to develop called Ahlul Ra'i and Ahlul Hadith. Has anyone heard something like this before? I'm going to get a bit technical, but you need to know this and you'll come across it later on, inshallah, as you get into the deen. Ahlul Ra'i and Ahlul Hadith. The people of opinions and the people of Hadith. Now by looking at it, you'd think, people of opinion, what's that? Chuck them aside. We want the people of Hadith. But no, no, no. That's not what it means. Not people of opinion like what West teaches in philosophy, meaning my opinion and... No, no. When we talk about people of Ra'i, 
It meant that these were people who deduced new views about current situations based on Dalil, based on the Quran and Sunnah in all its ways. People of Hadith were more literalists. They were more literal. Okay? So for example, if you say, Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam used the miswak, they'd come up to you and say, you should never ever use toothpaste and toothbrush. Always the miswak, regardless, and die on that. Or the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam ate on the floor, you should always eat on the floor and allowed to eat on the table. Okay, literalists in that sense. And they don't, Ahlul Hadith were, had a bit of a problem where they could not, or they didn't differentiate. They did, but not to a great degree, between what was Sunnah Tashri'iyah and Sunnah, uh, Sunnah Tashri'iyah and Sunnah Ghayr Tashri'iyah. The Sunnahs of the Prophet ﷺ, which were part of the Sharia, came from Allah, and the Sunnahs of the Prophet ﷺ, which were his personal likings. Rasulullah had a personal liking of how he combed his hair. He liked pumpkin soup. He didn't like lizard meat. But Khalid ibn Walid ate lizard meat in front of the Prophet and the Prophet just looked at it with a bit of uh, undesire, but Khalid ibn Walid kept eating. And we can't say that Khalid ibn Walid didn't follow the sunnah of the Prophet but he understood the difference between what's sunnah, that's not part of sharia, and it's Prophet's personal likings, and what is not. As for Ahlul Ra'i, the opinions, they based it on Dalil. They were a bit more open-minded in the sense that they looked at views a little bit more, uh, with a bit more uh, flexibility, but always based on Dalil. And they were both great scholars. Now what happened was, these Ahlul Ra'i, people of opinions, they based it on analogy, comparison, deduction, and they lived in Iraq mostly. Ahlul Hadith, their priority was to find the text and follow the text, literally. And they were mostly people of Hijaz. Hijaz meaning Medina, Mecca, those areas. Even till today, this is basically almost how it is. Both of them did not violate text, but one was more strict and, and literal than the other. What was the position of Imam al-Shafi'i? He was sort of half-half somewhere in between, a bit of a balanced approach. Not too much this way, not too much that way. But he also never violated hadith either. His statement was, all of us are men, all of us men of opinions can be disproved except for the owner of this grave. When he was doing his hajj, he looked at the grave of the Prophet ﷺ and he said, all of our ra'i, all of our opinions and views can be rejected and disproven except for the owner of this grave. And he pointed to the grave of Muhammad ﷺ. So then again, I remind everybody, be aware of something called at-ta'assub al-madhabi, the strict Blind following, zealous, uh, extremist, extremism in the way you follow the schools of thought. Where if I see that you are uh, a Hanbali, as we say, Hanbali, follow the mother of Ahmed Hanbali, and uh, you don't consider that breaking your wudu is a little bit of blood, and I see that blood came out of you a little bit, and you pray, and I'm a Hanafi, you know, follow the mother of Imam Hanifa, and I will refuse to pray behind you because, in my opinion, your prayer is not accepted. This layajus, this is not this is not allowed in the Sharia. And since these scholars learnt off each other, I'm sure that they prayed behind each other, for none of them ever discredited each other in any way, but they all said respect one another, and this is their view and my view, based on this Dalil and that Dalil. I don't want to go too much maybe inshallah we'll finish it with this actually. I'll just give you a little uh, example before going into the trials and tribulations of Mam Shafi, we'll finish it with this. I'll give you an example of many examples for you to walk away with. 
When it comes to scholars of great caliber and great dalil, and all of them have their dalil, all of them have their evidence and proof, and we are at this caliber, what do you do? With what Allah subhanahu has given you of knowledge and ability to understand, and the ulama, you, you follow as much as you can, follow the dalil, investigate, don't just refuse something without investigating or accept something without investigating, or actually maybe better to not practice something until you've investigated it. It's better to follow what you are certain about. These are all branches of the branches of the sharia. These are things which are very minute, insignificant, which we shouldn't really argue about at all. Move your finger, don't move your finger. I won't uh, stand in, in your presence. If you do that, you put your hand uh, on your belly. The other one puts it on his chest. These are fanatics. They're not. And we give each other names. This is division. I'll finish with this, that uh, when all the dalil is there and you've tried your best and you fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and everything that's available is there for you until Allah gives you more knowledge, until Allah and the imam that you follow, the shaykh that you take your advice from is, you know, is trustworthy and you can see in their character trustworthiness. That's the most important thing. You don't want a shifty person. It's not a alim. When a person who sticks to his word and knows what they're saying, they've got good character, not just on paper, but also in their character, then I say to you the example of when Rasul in the battle of the Khandaq, the trenches, when Bani Qurayza, the Jewish neighbors, they double-crossed and almost caused the death of the whole tribe of the whole Muslim Muslims of Medina. Rasul Sallallahu the battle, the uh, that that little siege ended, and the Prophet Sallallahu said, "Why are you taking off your armor? The, ba- the 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 war has not the battle has not ended. Wallahi la nusallil asra illa." We will not pray Asr except at the city of Bani Qurayza. It was almost Asr time. So we'll only pray it there. So some group went ahead and other groups went behind. The group that went behind was delayed. They were on their way. And the sun was about to set. So it's almost Maghrib. So a group said, listen, we'll take the Prophet ﷺ literally. We will not pray the Asr except there, even if Maghrib time comes. The other group said, no, the Qur'an comes before the Prophet's saying, and the principle is, Prayer has an appointed time. So even though the Prophet said it, what he meant was, in our view, is to hurry up and go there quickly, not literally to pray it there. But they did disagree on that opinion a group waited and a group prayed straight away when they reached the Prophet ﷺ, what happened they came to the Prophet ﷺ as brothers and they said this is our situation remarkably Rasul ﷺ did not say who was right and who was wrong he used the following statement you both you both reached the target at the end of the day, when it comes to this situation, it's not about right or wrong. In these situations, you tried your best. The point is to fear Allah as much as you can. Allah says, Fear your Lord as much as you can within your ability. But one of them was right, the other one, one of them was more right than the other, still. But they both received the reward because they tried with their dalil, they tried with their sincerity. They tried with their fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and their whims and desires didn't take over, nor did their tribalism or anything like that. And it kept them as brothers. They only disagreed, but they did not divide. And lastly, I mentioned to remember Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anhumah, 
they always, most often they disagreed on minute views, which didn't really affect the unity or the unity of the Ummah. And Rasul Sallallahu used to say, if you ever agree on something, then don't even consult me, it has to be, it has to be right. Because he knew their character. Don't even consult me, it has to be right. So even his great Sahabas differed in, in views on very minute issues. But at the end of the day, our Salat is our Salat, our fasting is our fasting, our Hajj, our Zakat is our Zakat, our monotheism is our monotheism, alhamdulillah. And all of these principles which makes you enter Jannah and keep you away from hellfire are still there, alhamdulillah. Division in the deen is a fitna. And that's why Rasul Sallallahu told us in a Sahih Hadith that one of the major sins is Al-Jadal, especially Fiddin, especially in the religion, argumentation in the deen, meaning argumentation based on whims and desires. This is one of the major sins because you are representing Allah's deen and His deen is not yours or mine to play with. So better to be quiet than to give a verdict which will earn your place in hellfire. So this is what I have today. I think we'll leave the rest, the other half, insha'Allah, of the biography of Imam al-Shafi'i till next week, insha'Allah ta'ala. قولوا قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم هذا وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين والحمد لله رب العالمين. اللهم صل على محمد رسول الله. اللهم صل على محمد نبي الله. اللهم صل على Rasulillah Allahumma salli ala